Sunday morning we, we looked at, uh, at Psalm 81 and also a portion here in John chapter 4, a number of other passages in, in uh, the, the Scripture in the Old Testament, and we will continue to do that this morning as we focus on uh, immaculate worship or instructive worship. And so I want to pick up uh, again this morning with um, verse 19 of chapter 4 and read down again to verse 26. Um, these are uh, principal verses that help to explain the uh, issue of Jesus with a woman at the well and one of the, the um, controversies that existed during Christ's day was where to worship and how to worship. And so Jesus uh, corrects this uh, woman. First of all, he obviously she's converted. She's convicted and converted. And then he corrects her about worship. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. And we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. All worship revolves around Jesus Christ. And that is one of the principles that we take from this passage, but there are others, and we'll broach those this morning as well. Let's go to the Lord and his throne of grace in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for your grace. It is unmerited. It is undeserved. It is a gift of the Spirit along with faith that brings us to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Teach us and instruct us on proper worship today. In Jesus' name we make this prayer. Amen. So we began this series of messages uh, a few weeks ago now, about six or eight weeks ago, uh, on uh, the, the controversial Christ. Many people um, basically that are ignorant of Scripture, especially ignorant of the Gospels, don't realize that Jesus was a, a man of controversy. And a lot of the controversy he drove himself, and we see that here. Sometimes he was asked controversial questions, and he answered controversial questions often with controversial questions. But people don't, uh, they, they seem to push that aside. Well, this is one of the controversies that Jesus himself addressed. And so we saw, or we have looked at, the fact that the world was interrupted with the Incarnation, and that Jesus himself interrogated, and that's what he's doing here in John 4. We've looked at other passages as well. Interrogated individuals, sometimes um, uh, prompting them to think. And we're going to see that this morning, that one of the things about worship is that it's rational. And then Christ's initiative, as we looked at Luke 19.10, is that he came to seek and to save 
the lost. And so Christ spoke then, and he speaks now to the intolerance of tolerance toward, towards authority. And that's answered by the living words, authority. All authority, he said, in the Great Commission is given to me on heaven and earth. Secondly, the challenges of fidelity to the Word of God, which is truth. That's within the church. Sometimes we think that the church is that we are perfected or we are in the process of being perfected, not in this life. There is sanctification that is involved, but we will see, and I'll mention this to you this morning, that there that all of us are guilty at one time uh, or another of improper worship. And so the living word's truth, what he speaks, and we see that here in John 4. Third, salvation was initiated by the centrality of cross and salvation. We'll never get away from the cross. Never, it, that's not the intent of uh, Old Testament or New Testament. The cross must be central in our worship. And fourthly, the instruction in proper worship for professing believers. In other words, that we learn how to live the truth and not just believe the truth. And we talked about that at uh, some length. So what follows being born again, and I want, want you to clearly understand this morning, if you're here and you do not know Jesus as your Savior, then you are not participating in worship you are here as a byproduct of worship. We want you to participate. The Lord wants you to participate, and that must be done by born-again people, by people of God. What follows our salvation is a lifetime of true worship, which is the highest and noblest activity of which believers, by God's grace, are capable. So let's look this morning at... <clears throat> Uh, a definition, if you please, of biblical worship. Biblical worship is the response of rational creatures, people, creatures that think. It's the response of rational creatures to the self-revelation of the Creator with honor and deserved glory. So let's, a few principles of this, of this uh, slide in the, in the slide uh, that follows. Worship is meant to honor and glorify God by gratefully offering back to Him all of His good gifts and all the knowledge of His greatness and His graciousness that He has given. All things proceed from the hand of God. All things. Secondly, Worship honors and glorifies God by praising Him for who He is alone. Not for what He's doing for us at any particular time, but for His person. Now, obviously, we live and breathe and move and have our being in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we worship Him for who He is alone. Thanking Him for what He has done. So thanksgiving is part of worship. Desiring Him to increase in glory through acts of mercy, through acts of grace, through acts of love, and yes, through acts of judgment and power. Worship 
through his judgment. Next slide. Worship honors and glorifies God by trusting him with our prayers. Our prayers that are made for our own well-being and for the benefit of others. Now, this is not all there is to praying, but it is part and parcel of the worship of the living God. We trust him with our prayers. We wouldn't pray if God was not sovereign. We wouldn't. But God is sovereign, and as I look about this congregation this morning, I see the sovereign results of God in many people's lives, mine included. Fourthly, worship honors and glorifies God by learning of Him. And we learned this morning the Samaritans didn't desire to learn of in fact, the woman said, we, we've heard that the Christ is coming. Well, that didn't save her. The one standing before saved her. So she was ignorant of the very person she was talking to. She had no knowledge. Worship honors and glorifies God by learning of him, giving attention to hearing and doing his word. If you're listening, say amen. amen. If you're listening, say amen. amen. Attention to the word honors God. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. Attention to the word honors God. Inattention offends God. Worship honors and glorifies God when we worship with clean hands and a pure heart. Turn with me to Psalm 24. Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness in all its fullness, the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. matters not whether you're born again or not. The earth is the Lord's. For he founded it upon the seas, and he established it upon the waters. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. So worship, to, in order that we offer proper worship on this earth, requires that we approach God with sanctification. We're going to look at that in, uh, in Second Chronicles here in just a moment. So we must have a clean heart, clean hands and pure heart. How does that happen? We have to be born again. It also means that we have a willingness to express devotion in works of service 
as well as words of adoration. Now, it's important that I praise the Lord this morning as I'm preaching, but that's not all that's required of me. That's the primary responsibility that's required of me as pastor, but it's not all that's required of me. Worship must be central in the life of Flat Creek. It must be central. And it must be central here on earth because it is the central activity of heaven. You don't like worship here, you're not going to like heaven. Look just a couple of these. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 4. We're not going to, we will not read all of them, but go with me to Revelation chapter 4. And verses 8 through 11, Then the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night. Now, there's no day or night in heaven. So John is writing this. This is a big word, anthropomorphism. In other words, he is projecting what is on earth into heaven. But there's no day or night in heaven. We learn of that as we go through the book of Revelation. Saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. This is a continual doxology in heaven. It never stops. It has never stopped. Whenever the living creatures give glory, his worship, glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the, four, the 24 elders fall down before him, who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Continually in heaven. And I trust that if you know the Lord as Savior, obviously you will join with this august group of born-again believers. Now, there are a lot of other passages. Um, verse 9 of chapter 5, right across the uh, page, You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and, have, and we shall reign on the earth. In other places, but go with me, if you would, to, I uh, think that should be chapter 19, 1 through 10, not, yeah, chapter 19, not 17, chapter 19. After these things, this is a culmination of what we refer to as the Great Tribulation. After these things, it's done. The earth has been purged. I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. And as far as I understand what's taking place here, those of us that know the Lord will be there. Saying, Alleluia. Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments. So we worship him, praising him for what he's done to the unbelievers on the earth. 
because he has vindicated his holy name. Not mine, not yours. His holy name. Because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they say, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard as it was, John said, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters, the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. George Handel would take this phrase and use it in Handel's Messiah that we sing or we listen to over Christmas. Let us be glad and rejoice. And give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made her, him, herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And then there's worship for you and I that know the Lord as Savior. Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, this was an angel. But notice what the angel says. See that you do not do that. You're not here to worship me. Oh, preacher, I just wish I could see an angel. I would love to see an angel. But I want to see my Savior more. Don't worship me. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Worship, it must be central here in the life of Flat Creek because it is central forever of all creatures in heaven. And therefore, worship should be the believer's main activity, both private and corporate, in each of our lives. Worship. Last Sunday we started to examine, in fact, we looked at a number of passages uh, of Scripture all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and uh, through the book of Genesis talked about the, uh, the strange fire of Nadab and Abihu and others. And we kind of closed out with um, 2 Kings chapter 17. So John 4 concerns a Samaritan woman. And 2 Kings uh, 17 has to do with the capture of Samaria. And we read a portion of that. Samaria was taken into captivity. In fact, turn with me back, if you would, 2 Kings chapter 17. Samaria 
Samaria are just the northern ten tribes of Israel. And so we looked at Jeroboam in 1 Kings chapter 12 and what he caused Israel to do. And in uh, 2 Kings chapter uh, 17, we see the capture of the Samaritan people uh, by Assyria. Look, if you would, at verse 24. Then the king of Assyria brought people from. One of the reasons that the Jews detested the Samaritans was what happens here. Then the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Chutha, Ava, Hamath, and from Sepharvazim. And played them in, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. So to resettle, now the king of Assyria took a great number of the Samaritan people or the Israeli people from Samaria into captivity. He then brought a great number of immigrants from lands that he had conquered into Samaria, and they settled there. There was interbreeding. And because of that, the Jews in in Judah and Palestine hated this crossbreeding and extremely racist that they were, never would have anything to do with the Samaritans. I think you begin to see, I hope you begin to see as we go through this this morning, how how compassionate Christ is to journey into Samaria, which essentially had been left alone for hundreds of years, even by the prophets. Drop down to, uh, well, look at verse 25. And it was so at the beginning of their dwelling there that they did not fear the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. Now lion, not only is this uh, the creature lion, but a lion was also the symbol of Assyria. As the eagle is for the United States. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have removed and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them, and indeed they are killing them because they do not know the rituals of the land. So the king said, Send from Assyria one of the priests of the Samaritans back to Samaria to teach them about their religion. Sounds very freedom of religionist, does it not? Verse 27, he said, take these priests. Verse 28, one of the priests uh, that they had carried from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel, uh, just north of Jerusalem, and taught them how they should fear the Lord. Now, so you have a group of immigrants from Assyria, from the lands that had been conquered by the Assyrians. That, are, that immigrate to Samaria. And the problem now is that because they were worshiping the idols of Assyria, the Lord had caused 
lions, as well as the representatives of Assyria, to move into the land and to begin to kill the people. So the king of Assyria says, hey, I know how to settle this. Just take one of the priests, send him back. He'll teach the people and everything will be fine. fine. Everything will be honky-dory. Verse 29, however, every nation continued to make gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places which the Samaritans had made every nation in the cities where they dwell, the men of Babylon, then it lists the cities and so forth. And if you drop down, verse 32, so they feared the Lord and, not period, So they feared the Lord, and from every class they appointed for themselves priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. They feared the Lord, yet served their own gods according to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried away. Now, Brother Vance was teaching a couple of Wednesday nights ago, and he read this portion of Scripture as well. What does it sound like? What nation does this sound like now? Does this ring true today? We want to fear the Lord, but just to be on the safe side. Let's accommodate all these other people because we certainly don't want to offend them. Verse 34, to this day they continue practicing the formal rituals. They do not fear the Lord, nor do they follow the statutes of their ordinances or the law and commandments which the Lord had made, uh, had commandments of the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel, and whom the Lord had made a covenant and charged them, saying, you shall not fear other gods. What's the very first commandment? What's the first commandment? What? Have no other gods before me. You can't have me and all your buddies. And so, verse 38, the covenant that I made with you, you shall not forget, nor shall you fear other gods. But the Lord your God you shall fear. He will deliver you from the hands of your enemies. And because they did not fear the Lord, they were taken captive by their enemies. So these nations fear the Lord and yet serve their carved images. Also their children and their children's children have continued doing as their fathers did even to this day. This is Samaria. And this is why Jesus went to Samaria to bring an adulterous woman out of her sin and to teach her how to worship. So, look if you would at chapter 18. Now, the writer of the king, we believe that the writer here is Nathan the prophet. It, it could have been another prophet, we're not sure, but we know that he probably wrote First and Second Samuel, a good portion of First and Second Kings as well, or maybe um, a portion of them. 
So that's dealing with Samaria. Now, verse 1. It came to pass in the year of uh, Hashiah, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. So now we, we fast forward to Judah. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places. He broke the sacred pillars. He cut down the wooden image. He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. They took what Moses had made to heal folks during the wilderness journey, and they worshipped it. He trusted in the Lord of God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, no who were before him. He did not depart from following the Lord. He kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. The Lord was with him. He prospered wherever he went, and he rebelled against the king of Syria and did not serve him. There's a great story behind this. We're not going to read all of that. But jump ahead, 2 Chronicles chapter 29. The Lord did not give up on Samaria. The Lord will not give up on you and I. So, our understanding of the reason that 1 Kings and 2 Kings are in the Bible, in the Old Testament, along with First Chronicles and Second Chronicles. I think I've explained this to you before. First and Second Kings portrays the history of Judah and Israel as seen through the eyes of man. First and Second Chronicles portrays the history of Judah and Israel as seen through the eyes of God. They're almost verbatim. So here we have how the Lord looked at Hezekiah. Some of the, uh, verse 2, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. First year of his reign, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. Four, four patterns to proper worship from Second Chronicles chapter 29. he repaired them. Then he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them in the east square and said to them, Hear me, Levites. Now sanctify yourselves. Sanctify the house of the Lord of your fathers. Carry out the rubbish from this holy place. Clean up the temple. We've let it fall into disrepair. We are disrespectful. We have offended God because we've not taken care of his house. For our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him, have turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and turned their backs on him. They have also shut up the doors of the vestibule. They put out the lamps, verse 8. Therefore the wrath of the Lord fell upon Judah and Jerusalem, and he has given them up to trouble, to desolation, to jeering, as you see with your eyes. For indeed, because of this, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons 
Our daughters and our wives are in captivity. Some of those that were in Samaria were Jews that had immigrated from Judah into Samaria, carried off into captivity by the Assyrians. Hezekiah recognized this. And so the first thing in verses 5 and 6, and then in the verse 10, he says, Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. My sons, do not be negligent. The Lord has chosen you to stand before him to serve him, that you should minister to him and burn incense. So one of the patterns of proper worship seen in the Old Testament carried forward into the, to the New Testament is the sanctification of the leadership. Those of the priest in the New Testament, it would be pastors and deacons. A cleansing, a consecration to the Lord of the ones that he has called to carry out his ministry. Secondly, the sanctification of the congregation. The laity of God don't get away. <coughs> Verse 12. The Levites arose, and they list the Levites here. Uh, verse 15, they gathered their brethren and sanctified themselves. Okay, the leaders went according to the commandment of the king at the words of the Lord to cleanse the house of the Lord. They went into the inner part of the house and cleansed it. Verse 17, they began to sanctify on the first day of the first month. On the eighth day of the month, they came to the vestibule of the Lord. They sanctified the house of the Lord in eight days. Hezekiah said, we have cleansed all the house of the Lord, the altar of burnt offerings, Moreover, all the all, uh, articles which King Ahaz in his reign has cast aside, we have prepared, we have sanctified, and therefore, this is before the altar of God. A sanctification of the leadership, sanctification of the congregation, verses 20 through 24. Sanctification depends on the atonement. In the Old Testament, of course, that was sacrifices, and that's what's listed here. Hezekiah rose early, gathered the rulers of the city, went up to the house of the Lord. They brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, seven male goats for sin offering. Not only did he say, God, forgive me, but he went into his pocket and paid for offerings to be sacrificed before the Lord. When I pray, after I pray on Sunday morning, I say we will worship the Lord with tithes and offerings. In the Bible, all the way back to the giving of the law, reinstituted again in the New Testament. Regardless of the, <coughs> the economic station of individuals, either Old Testament or New Testament, regardless of their wealth or lack thereof, every family, every family was required to present an offering. And we see that here, the offerings that have been made, that's listed all the way down through verse 24. And then there was a great celebration, the sanctification of leadership, the sanctification of the congregation, a sanctification that depends on atonement, and then a sanctification that leads to praise and obedience. 
And he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, verse 25, with stringed instruments and with harps according to the commandment of David. <clears throat> uh, Gad the king's, make sure I get this right, yeah. Gad the king's seer and of Nathan the prophet, for thus was the commandment of the Lord by the prophets. They stood with the instruments of David, priests with the trumpets, commanded them to offer the burnt offering on their altar. When they began, the song of the Lord began, the trumpets and with the instruments of David, king of Israel, all the assembly worshipped. The singer sang, the trumpeter sounded, all this continued until the burnt offering was finished. And when they had finished offering, the king and all who were present with him bowed and worshipped. Wouldn't you like to see that happen in Congress? From the executive branch, our uh, congressional branch, and our um, judicial branch. Well, we're, we're not we're not built that way. We're not Israel. No, we're not. We're not Israel. America's not the fulfillment of Israel. There have been those for years that have claimed that, but it's not. They fell down, and they worshipped. <clears throat> they commanded the Levites to sing praise to the Lord with the words of David which, and Asaph, which means they sang the Psalms. So they sang praises with gladness, and they bowed their heads and worshipped. And then Hezekiah the king said, Now that you have consecrated yourselves to the Lord, come near and bring sacrifices and thank offerings into the house of the Lord. So the assembly, the congregation, So the assembly brought in sacrifices and thank offerings, and as many as were of a willing heart brought burnt offerings. See, there's one of the keys also to proper worship. Not a complaining heart, but a willing heart. And so the number of the burnt offerings which the assembly brought was 70 bulls, 100 rams, 200 lambs, and all these were a burnt offering. The consecrated things were 600 bulls, 3,000 sheep. And there were so many that the priests, as it's recorded, were too few. This is a way to worship. Too few. The latter part of verse 35 says, So the service of the house of the Lord was set in order. So what does this teach us? It teaches us that prior to Hezekiah doing this, prior to the Samaritans being taken into captivity by the Assyrians, that the house of the Lord was witness to improper worship. That's what it tells us. There had to be a change, just as there has to be a change in our life. Verse 36, And Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced that God had prepared the people since the events took place so suddenly. 
The great revival took place under Hezekiah. Now, take the time and we could read on. I do want to read the first, the first few verses here of chapter 30, but if you go forward in the book of Second Chronicles or the book of Second Kings, you find that Sennacherib, the king of the Assyrians, sent messengers to Hezekiah and said, listen, if you don't bow to me, I will destroy Judah. So after all of this, all this great praise, this great honor, this great worship of Yahweh, God allows Sennacherib to send a message to Hezekiah and warn them, I'm going to destroy you. And if you know anything about Scripture, you find that the Lord told Hezekiah, hey, don't be concerned with Sennacherib. I'm going to take care of it. You continue to do what you're doing. You perform the perpetual worship that I declared to Moses. And the Bible says an angel of the Lord that Sennacherib, rather, sent his army and encircled Jerusalem, 185,000 troops. Hezekiah prayed. He was obedient to the Lord. And the Bible says an angel of the Lord, who we would recognize as a Christophany, an Old Testament appearance of Christ, swept through the army and slaughtered every single one of them. You don't think the Lord rewards proper worship? You don't think the Lord rewards our sacrifices made to him? Then you do not. Then you're ignorant of the knowledge of the Lord. Now, chapter 30. We'll close with this this morning. And Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel. Ephraim and Manasseh is another name for Samaria. So Hezekiah said, okay, we have rededicated the temple. We've consecrated itself. We've offered these sacrifices. We're worshiping and praising the Lord. And guess what? We invite you to come and join and be with us. Samaria. To keep the Passover. For the king and his leaders and all the assembly in Jerusalem had agreed to keep the Passover in the second month. It had been years since the Passover had been kept. For they could not keep it at a regular time because a sufficient number of priests had not consecrated themselves nor had the people gathered together at Jerusalem. And the matter pleased the king and all the assembly so they resolved to make a proclamation throughout all Israel. This is not Judah now, from all Israel. From Beersheba to Dan. From the area that's just below Jerusalem all the way to the northern extremity of Samaria. that they should keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel in Jerusalem since they had not done it for a long time. And all this we go through and we find 
that the Lord God has been. Verse 9, for if you return to the Lord, this is what the runners took to Samaria, your brethren, and your children will be treated with compassion by those who lead them captive, led them captive so that they may come back to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn his face from him. If you return to him. And then we are told that for the most part, Samaria rejected it. No, we don't want to have anything to do with it. We're happy. We're fat, we're dumb, and we're happy. And that's all that matters. And so Samaria remained in captivity. But here we see the grace of God through the king Hezekiah, the continual compassion of the Lord as he reaches out to Samaria. And now, 800 years, seven to 800 years after this, we see the Savior who had not forgotten Samaria. In order to correct the worship in Samaria, Christ in grace confronts a woman and addresses the sins of her past life. He also corrects her about her improper worship. You don't know what you're doing. Go back to John 4. Let's read a couple of verses. We'll close. John 4. <clears throat> Verse 22, the Lord said, you, you worship what you don't know. So you're not worshiping. You don't know what you're worshiping. You're not worshiping. It results in her conviction and her, and her conversion. So next Sunday we will pick up where the Lord addresses fundamental principles that are, are essential to true worship. And one of the things are two things about worship. Worship that is reasonable and worship that is spiritual. Reasoned and spiritual. Truth means that worship is reasonable. Spirit obviously means that we worship the Lord in his spirit. We cannot do that until we know the Lord as Savior. That's a lot of history. I understand that. But I want you to un also to grasp this reason that Jesus is here with this singular woman. Because he is the great shepherd that leaves the 99 and goes out to save her soul and to teach her about proper worship. Father, we thank you this morning for your son. What beautiful illustrations contained in your word. What, what narrative. And here we are removed from Hezekiah almost 3,000 years and we can read of these, uh, these principles that he reinstituted. We can read of the priests. In fact, it was, there were so many offerings 
that the people brought, that the priests, there were not enough priests to attend to the service of sacrifice. Teach us these great truths this morning. And teach us that we are also, Lord Jesus, to commit our lives to following you in spirit and in truth. Have your sweet will, your divine way in the remainder of the service today. In Jesus' name I make this prayer. Amen. If you're here today and you do not know the Lord as, as your Savior,